Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello from Jerusalem. Men in the Shadows is the title Ephraim Alevi chose for his memoir, and from these shadows he will emerge here as the first guest in this new series of one-on-one conversations with key people in Israel's military, diplomatic, and security affairs. I am Amir Oren of TV7 Israel, and it is both an honor and a pleasure to host Ephraim Alevi, a veteran of almost 40 years of service in Israel's Foreign Intelligence and Special Missions Agency, Mossad, culminating in heading it under three prime ministers, Barak, Netanyahu, and Sharon. Ambassador Alevi, who was born in London and emigrated as a teenager, also represented Israel at the European Union and NATO, and was Ariel Sharon's National Security Council chief. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. We will uh, soon get to a tour d'horizon of what is happening in the region, in the world, through your perspective. But first, it is intriguing for our viewers uh, to meet a director of Mossad who may combine the qualities of James Bond and John Le Carre's Smiley. Do you prefer either of them? A mix of the two. Now, um, Mossad is obviously a very prestigious, um, reputable reputable, uh, agency, and um, people would say um, uh, on a par with the Central Intelligence Agency, MI6, uh, the French, Russian, and other services. How do you rate it? I think Mossad is a very, very good, professional, and uh, highly respected uh, agency in the world. I think we have had our share of major successes. We have also had a share of one or two hitches on the way. But I think that uh, the uh, final line at the end of the uh, charge sheet is very, very positive. What is uniquely Israeli uh, in Mossad? Because as uh, we uh, ticked, there are such agencies uh, uh, in many countries, some of uh, whom uh, are uh, bigger and wealthier than Israel, uh, perhaps not uh, facing such existential uh, threats. But what makes Mossad uniquely Israeli? First of all, the fact that uh, there is no legislation which has ever been uh, agreed uh, to present to Parliament stating what the aims of the Mossad are and what methods it can use. Secondly, the name of the Mossad is the Intelligence Agency for Intelligence and Special uh, Assignments. Special assignments can be anything and everything. And I think that the Mossad has a gamut of everything and anything which is probably unique in the world today because we have engaged in activities in which no other intelligence service, to my mind, has ever engaged in. One of these missions uh, is protecting uh, Jewish communities. 
uh, around the world uh, when they are in trouble or when trouble is anticipated or when they want to emigrate and there are difficulties and you were in charge of um, one uh, of the Mossad's division uh, handling uh, those missions. Is that something special uh, which you can recount? Indeed, yes. Uh, I uh, was head of this division for five years and we uh, uh, at that time uh, launched a series of operations. One was in Sudan from which we uh, operated in order to uh, bring the Jews of Ethiopia, the Falasha Jews as they were called, to Israel through a country which was an enemy country. Those were the years in which we had a major operation in Syria to take out hundreds of young people under the uh, threat of the uh, regime of Hafez al-Assad, Assad the father. This was a, a time in which we also launched a very large operation in uh, Iran. Uh, I came on board a year after the revolution in Iran and we had to mount a very, very large operation to create a, uh, I'd say, a lifeline in, through which the Iranians who wished to uh, leave the country uh, were able to do so. And this is only a few examples of the kind of activities we had. At that time, too, we began to take an interest in the Jews of Yemen, and that was one other thing we had in, on mind. So there was a very large agenda. The question of protecting Jewish communities is a very, very delicate one. Uh, Mossad uh, was behind the scenes on these matters in certain parts of the world, not all parts of the world. There are certain places where we never operated. We never operated in the United States of America on this issue. And uh, <clears throat> we operated where Jews were potentially in a state of distress. Uh, this I commanded for five years and uh, it prepared me for many of the other things I did in the future. Intelligence is the uh, stock in trade, uh, raw intelligence uh, which one collects and uh, the finished product of uh, analysis if the other services um, trust you uh, to be uh, fair and professional. And you were um, in charge of uh, the uh, Mossad office in Washington in the years leading up to and during the uh, Yom Kippur War. Um, at that time, we now know Israel had um, a top spy in the uh, Egyptian elite, Ashraf Mawan, the son-in-law of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president who preceded Anwar Sadat. And you took part in the uh, exchange between Mossad and the uh, CIA. Could you recall some of uh, what transpired? I think that uh, in the years 70 to 73, we were able to uh, create a situation in which the relationship between the two agencies became very much closer. On the American side was a very unique figure, uh, James Jesus Angleton, who was director of counterintelligence which uh, on the face of it uh, was not the area in which uh, the Mossad had to cooperate with the Foreign Service. Counterintelligence is the function in which the uh, agency protects itself. And that is not something which agencies uh, 
share with uh, other uh, organizations of a similar type. But we were able to get uh, closer and closer and create a, uh, an atmosphere of confidence, which served us as we approached uh, the Yom Kippur War. And uh, without going into details of one agent or another, because I would prefer even today not to go into too many details, I believe that we were able to give the United States intelligence uh, community a picture of what was going on. But there were two sides to this. One was to provide them with intelligence, and the other was to provide them with assessments. And on the intelligence side, I think we did fairly well. On the assessment side, in the end, we failed like all the others. Although at the time, strange as it may seem or sound, the Mossad never indulged in assessments of the Middle East in a serious manner until after the Yom Kippur War. One of the uh, conclusions of the uh, Israeli uh, powers that be, the political level as we call it, from the uh, uh, serious failure of assessment uh, up to leading up to the Yom Kippur War was that uh, there had to be what they called plurality in incessants. And the Mossad then created a, an assessment uh, uh, arm, which at first was very unwelcome in the, in the intelligence community in Israel. And it took years until it established itself. And when I became head of Mossad uh, in two, 1998, one of the first things I did was to create and establish an intelligence division inside the intelligence service, something which did not exist before. You can bear personal witness to the uh, week before the Yom Kippur War, when uh, Henry Kissinger asked the uh, Israeli embassy and you personally uh, to uh, go back to Mossad and military intelligence and find uh, whether there are reasons to suspect that what is happening uh, with the Syrian army and later the Egyptian army is threatening or just another exercise. You probably remember these nights and days. I do remember them very well. Uh, I was then in Washington, and I remember on the second day of New Year, uh, the Jewish uh, religion celebrates two days for the uh, New Year, maybe uh, out of uh, trust that if one day is not enough, you need two days to feel really uh, up to date and uh, uh, in prepared for the future. But at the end of the second uh, day, uh, I was uh, uh, a guest at the home of the Israeli military attaché, General Mordechai Gur, Motagur, who later became chief of staff. And we were there uh, celebrating the, uh, the aftermath of uh, the new year. And suddenly I was called out for a meeting at 10 o'clock at night and given a, uh, a report, a very detailed report about uh, preparations which were going on in the north especially, uh, which would show that there's a, a strong possibility that there is preparation for a, uh, an offensive against Israel. And uh, I was asked to pass it on very, very quickly in order to obtain an assessment. Uh, 
what I did not know at the time, but I learned later, that this was based on information that had been provided by the Jordanian leadership, both to Israel and to the United States. But what happened was that within 24 hours, uh, the reply came back that this is a, a very important uh, report, but that the assessment has not changed, and that uh, um, there is really no uh, uh, imminent danger of a, uh, an attack. I um, remember at the time as well, if I'm not mistaken, that there was a terrorist incident in Vienna, and uh, Mrs. Meir, I think, passed through there, and she met with the uh, Austrian Chancellor Kreisky, and they had a very intense discussion mm -hmm. between themselves. And I was sitting with an, uh, a, uh, a, um, a CIA uh, a colleague discussing what was going on in general terms. And I said just uh, off my head that sometimes terrorist acts lead to wars. And uh, apparently he uh, took this on and uh, it was passed on inside the American system. And uh, back in Tel Aviv, the uh, uh, American CIA station chief immediately went to the Mossad and asked, uh, we have just received message uh, from a discussion with uh, Ephraim Halevi. And the immediate result was that I was severely reprimanded and censured from, for deviating from the official line, which was that there is no danger for imminent war of Yom Kippur. But isn't there another danger of going uh, from the uh, over-optimistic uh, pole to the over-pessimistic and even alarmist one, uh, where because of the lessons of Yom Kippur and Pearl Harbor and many other such uh, failures of early warning, one would jump at <clears throat> any noise? Yes. Uh, actually, several months before this, uh, I think it was in May, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Israel received information of the possibility of a, a, an imminent attack and actually uh, recruited reserve forces and so forth, which A, was very costly, both for the economy and otherwise. And as a result of this, uh, the, uh, apparently uh, uh, Sadat changed his uh, timetable. Uh, and this was provided as proof that one should not be uh, so, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, um, in, um, inclined to take every small warning as uh, something which has to be uh, immediately uh, the trigger for a major uh, uh, recruitment which would become uh, obvious and uh, famous. So in some respects, the uh, event of May, in retrospect, provided uh, Sadat with the ammunition uh, which uh, created the impression in Israel that whatever intelligence would come, there would be no war. So how did you, uh, as head of Mossad, find the balance between these two perils of um, uh, alerting mm. too much and, and too little, bearing in mind that in the Israeli system it is the director of military intelligence that is in charge of assessment. It is his responsibility, but nevertheless, you as Mossad chief also, of course, contribute a lot to this alert. 
Uh, <clears throat> I think to this day, um, no director of military intelligence would agree that Mossad has a role uh, on this issue. <clears throat> Although the relationship is, uh, has its ups and downs, and sometimes it's very close, depending on personalities sometimes. But nevertheless, uh, I think that uh, we have to be uh, very, very cautious in uh, uh, sounding the alarm, but we also have to be very cautious to be uh, snug and to feel that we are in safety. Uh, on the eve of Yom Kippur, uh, Moshe Dayan lunched with uh, the officer commanding of uh, Central Command, I think it was uh, uh, Zaevi at the time. And Zaevi said that he, uh, he had all this information, uh, like others, and he asked Dayan, doesn't he think that uh, the uh, IDF is a little uh, too uh, complacent? And Dayan said, uh, the Arab uh, military capability is such that it'll take them at least 10 years, at least 10 years to reach the level that they would even dare to contemplate a, another uh, uh, confrontation with Israel following what happened in the Six-Day War. And therefore, uh, he uh, uh, told him that he should, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, take it easy and not to be too over-concerned, and everything was under control. This was um, 24 hours exactly before the war broke out. So it was a combination of underrating the enemy and overrating oneself. Because when they met on the battlefield, as, as Sadat uh, had devised a brilliant plan, uh, it turned out that the Arabs were at least uh, adept in executing this particular plan, while the Israelis uh, were inclined to fight the last war. Yes, uh, that's true. <clears throat> uh, have we learned the lessons? I think we have, <clears throat> but there's no guarantee. Because in the end, uh, it's not only a question of uh, intentions. Uh, I remember that in the eve of the Six-Day War, it was uh, three weeks after I was appointed deputy head of the division, of the Foreign Relations Division, and uh, I used to attend, uh, as a result of this, uh, briefings held by the then uh, military uh, uh, intelligence chief, Yariv, Aron Yariv, who was a, uh, a man of enormous uh, stature intelligence-wise. And I remember uh, that after uh, Nasser uh, closed the canal, uh, there was a briefing session uh, with Yariv, and the military intelligence assessment uh, arm came and started detailing all the various uh, elements of how to assess uh, the Egyptian intentions. What does the, what does uh, Sadat intend? Nasser. Now, what does Nasser intend? Yes, and Yariv got uh, more and more uh, uh, fidgetive and. Uh, and uh, angry, and he hit the hand on the table, and he said, no longer intentions, only capabilities. I don't want to hear a word about intentions, only capabilities. The biggest uh, mistake 
in the Yom Kippur war was not the intentions. There was a mistake on intentions, but the even greater mistake was to assess the capabilities because we knew what the other side had. We knew that they had the, uh, the uh, missiles which could penetrate armor. We knew that they had the aircraft with the uh, electronics which would give them the upper hand. All this was known, but the intentions and capabilities were not put together. That is what you have to do to make the synthesis of the two. And on one or two of these occasions, as you saw, there was a mistake on the one hand and a mistake on the other. Now, you first mm. emerged from the shadows, which you write about, uh, when Israel and Jordan signed the peace accord. All of a sudden, Yitzhak Rabin, one of the um, prime ministers uh, whom you knew uh, at close hand, you already worked uh, foreign minister in the Ben-Gurion cabinet in the 1950s, and then obviously uh, you knew uh, Golda Meir and others, but Rabin you knew from his days as the ambassador to Washington when you were there for Mossad, and then during the uh, Jordanian negotiations uh, in which you played a central part. What can you uh, recount from your conversations with King Hussein? And you, you met him uh, at least during two vital processes. One was the uh, peace process, both in the 80s and then in the 90s. And then after the so-called Marshall Affair, in which a botched Mossad operation, not under your command, because you were in Brussels at the time, um, uh, had Prime Minister Netanyahu recall you in order to use your uh, good offices to placate um, King Hussein. What can you recount from your um, familiarity with the king? What did he tell you, for instance, about his uh, disappointment at Prime Minister Meir not taking too seriously his warning on the eve of the uh, Yom Kippur War? <clears throat> I never discussed with Hussein the Yom Kippur War. Uh, I did discuss with Hussein the first Iraqi war in 1991, uh, because shortly after that, I began to meet with him, actually before that. Uh, in March of 1990, I had the first meeting with Hussein, which was totally unplanned in London. I was meeting with one of his aides to discuss uh, technical matters concerning with the communications between uh, them and us uh, at the uh, residence of uh, King Hussein, one of them, uh, in uh, a house which is second to the house of the Israeli embassy in London. And not too far from your own um, uh, childhood. Not too uh, far uh, from neighborhood. Uh, yeah. And I was speaking with the, uh, with the, uh, the aide, and suddenly the door opened and uh, Hussein came in. And uh, within a few minutes I looked around and the aide had disappeared and we were there alone. It's the only conversation I had with Hussein that I cannot remember a word. But something happened there which I cannot describe. And from then on, we began to meet. And I'd like to come up and to take the issue of the Iraqi war and to talk about it because it is important and it has its, uh, uh, I think, its importance even to this day. Uh, Desert Storm, as it was called, uh, uh, with General Schwarzkopf, I think it was, who was commanding the American forces with an enormous... Uh, um, uh, combination a, uh, of countries, over 50 countries, 
who joined the alliance against uh, Saddam Hussein. And where King Hussein made two mistakes. Uh, One in assessing that Saddam Hussein will not invade Kuwait, uh, and then with in siding with him. Well, I met, I met him both uh, when, uh, before the invasion of Kuwait took place, and I afterwards met him several times uh, after the uh, uh, event took place. Actually, I, I met him in London when he came to see Mrs. Thatcher, who was then Prime Minister, who berated him uh, very strongly for the position he was taking. I think um, the biggest mistake uh, is the mistake that was made by those who decided to go to war. Saddam Hussein did not want to go to war. Saddam Hussein was extremely well known to the Americans. At one time, several years before that, he had been a political refugee in Cairo. And there he was uh, uh, contacted by the CIA and a, a relationship was discussed, uh, was set up between them not a purely religion, uh, technical uh, uh, relationship between a source and an uh, intelligence officer, but it was a, a relationship of uh, a strategic nature. And when uh, Saddam Hussein took over, uh, Saddam Hussein was in a very difficult position because, as you probably remember, there had been a war, the uh, Iraqi-Iranian war. And in that war in the 80s, as you probably remember, uh, at first time, at the first stage, the Iranians were, uh, had the upper hand and the Iraqis were losing. And it was then that the Iraqis turned to the Americans and Saddam turned to the Americans. And it was Robert Gates, who was then director uh, of assessments, who were strongly recommended to afford the uh, Iraqis with information, with imagery, with satellite imagery, which would enable the Iraqis to target the uh, uh, Iranian uh, uh, serious and vital uh, targets very, very accurately. Because the Iranians under Khomeini yes. were hostile to the Americans. Yeah. And the Americans were key to enable uh, Iraq to win because the uh, information which was provided to the Iraqis turned the fortunes of war. So there are two lessons here. First is that there are shifting alliances, no permanent allies. And the other is that it may take a regional ruler to know another one rather than uh, an observer in Washington. Indeed, yes. The Middle East is a history of shifting sands. Ephraim Alevi, thank you very much. And uh, we will have another installment uh, in this series of Watchmen Talk with you very soon. For the time being, we are taking a so-called decent interval and we will resume our conversation soon. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.